Have you ever wondered why anyone drinks Malort? Or if there are actually lobsters in the Chicago River? Then listen to the Curious City podcast, where we answer all your questions about Chicago and the region. WBEZ's Curious City is part of the NPR network and available wherever you find your podcasts. Hi, I'm Jen White, and this is your Sunday Reset. 57 years ago next month, Lenny Bruce was hauled off a Chicago stage in the middle of his performance. His crime? Talking about racism, religion, and sex, subjects you didn't talk about in public in 1962. By all accounts, the audience roared. But the Chicago cops in attendance were not amused. So Lenny Bruce was arrested. It wasn't the first or the last time he'd be busted for breaking social norms from the stage. Bruce died four years later, decimated by legal bills, drug addiction, and a society that wasn't ready to look into the mirror that he was holding up. But Lenny Bruce lives on. He's immortalized in songs and films. His work was a massive influence on George Carlin, Richard Pryor, Chris Rock, and nearly every other comedian who dares to tell painful truths. And a fictional version of Bruce encourages the marvelous Mrs. Maisel to be a fearless, truth-telling comic in the hit TV series of the same name. Writer and actor Ronnie Marmo gives audiences a good slice of Bruce, not only the legend, but the man, in his play, I'm Not a Comedian, I'm Lenny Bruce, now on stage at the Royal George Theater. Ronnie Marmo, welcome to Reset. Thank you, Jen. Thank you for having me. So who is Lenny Bruce to you? Oh, you got a couple of years? It's going to take a long time. Um, 60 years ago, people didn't want to look in the mirror. In fact, we're going through that again now, actually. In a lot of ways, people don't want to have the conversation. But Lenny, to me, was a, a man who fought for what he believed in and died for what he believed in. He was, he was very important, and um, I'm proud to be able to tell his story, really. When yeah. were you first exposed to Lenny Bruce? You know, when I was a kid, I, I heard my mom and dad listening to his records. Because we got uh, the Romans, right? We're all Romans, and we're all correct. We've got a good government. We have... Uh, yeah, our whole judicial system is really an art form, sculpt, we're beautiful people. Now, this group is against everything that's good. This group are called Christians. Now, what do we do with the Christians? It's only one thing that is correct and moral to do them, throw them to the lions. Now, as rough as segregation gets, boy, lion fressing, that's, uh, yeah. I'd rather get schlepped away from a lunch counter any day. Yeah. But I was really young, and uh, he was already gone, and so... Of course, I grew up loving George Carlin, Richard Pryor, Dick Gregory, all the great comics. And then about 12 years ago, this comic named Charlie Brill came to be with a one-man show. It was called Lenny's Back and Boy Is He Pissed. And it was a Lenny Bruce one-man show. And he asked me to do it, and I got nervous because I knew a lot of Lenny's friends were still around and alive. Eventually, I said yes. I did the play, and I fell in love with Lenny. I, uh, I researched everything I'd get my hands on. And then ultimately... After doing the show, I realized that we were leaving a lot out. We weren't doing his material. We were. It felt like we were sitting around a campfire talking about Lenny and telling stories as opposed to like showing all of it, the good, the bad, the ugly. And so I wanted to put the bits into the show, and the writer said, well, I don't have the rights to the bits. And so I set off to write my own. It took five years, and, uh, and most importantly, as you mentioned in the open, really share who the man was because generally speaking people just play the frustrated bitter Lenny and they don't really get to know him and so that was important to me. It's interesting because you said during the first production you fell in love with him. Had you already fallen in love with his comedy as well or did that come a little later? It was him. It was his relationship with his daughter and my relationship with my daughters, his love for his mom, my love for my mom. It was one of those roles as an actor and a writer 
it just fits. It's weird. You, you're lucky to get one of these in your life as an actor. And I was able to create my own, which is great. But it, the marriage between Lenny and myself internally was just so easy and so specific. And then I loved his comedy. And then I realized how smart he was in his comedy. You know, what seems to be a silly bit turns out to be something really smart and people don't want to deal with. Most, most of his material is very, very... Uh, smart why do you think this is the right time for this story to be told i think we're in trouble there's so many movements that are out now which i, I think are so important and so necessary but what i think we're missing is is like many people would rather brush something under the rug than have a hard conversation and i don't think there's growth in that and so i think lenny now is shocking people beyond what he was doing 60 years ago I think now because most people would rather go let's just not talk about it. let's take that off the air let's not deal with that person you know when you have people like Jerry Seinfeld who's a very clean comic and he's not doing blue material when you have him boot off stage in a college I think we're in trouble and I had the thought yesterday that maybe we're just a few years away from comedy being extinct in some ways because I know, I've heard a lot of comics I know and love say, I like my house and my two cars. I'm not getting back on stage. I don't need it. I don't need the stress in this time we're in. Well, it's interesting because I think both comedy and theater are places where social norms are challenged. And where have you found, I guess, the marriage between those two worlds in, in this work? Well, I was raised in the theater to believe that it's a sacred space and very much like Lenny Bruce, if your intentions are pure and good, then you should be able to talk about anything. And I do think theater has the power to change people and move people. Christian Gregory, Dick's son, is a dear friend, and uh, I had told him before I got to Chicago the opening week, I texted him, I said, Christian, I'm nervous, you know, specifically about the N-word bit. I said, I'm nervous, and uh, I hope Chicago gets it, you know. And he wrote me this beautiful text saying how important it is. But he then said, forget bro breaking legs. Why don't you break open some minds? That's what Christian Gregory told me. So I needed his support in that to, like, sleep at night. And, um, you know, I just think theater is the place to uh, respectfully try to have hard discussions about things. Well, you mentioned his famous bit, using the N-word. Mm -hmm. He would repeat it over and over, explaining that if you say it enough and make it a, a regular word, you take away its power to hurt people. But here we are nearly 60 years later, and that word still has the ability to hurt. And, and even people who understand what Bruce was trying to do, it can be very uncomfortable hearing that routine. So what is the conversation you're hoping to surface? Mm. Well, I could just basically share with you what has happened. In Los Angeles, we did 120 performances, and New York, 100. And now we're here. And the conversations that have happened, um, you know, look, I'm an Italian-American, which I'm proud of, although many would just think I'm a white guy, but I, I see myself as Italian-American. I don't pretend for a moment to have any rights to that word or to say that word. And you know who taught me? That was this wonderful 16-year-old African-American girl. She came to the play in New York. There was a, a community uh, of uh, inner-city artists. They were all teenagers. They came to the show. Anyway, we had a discussion. And I said to her after, how do you feel about the bit? And she was incredible. She changed my whole view. She said, you know, it's not that it bothered me because I really did get what Lenny was saying. I dug Lenny and I, and I get him and I love him. I, I got it. She's like, but I just don't want to share that word 
It's our word, and we have earned that word, and I don't want to share it. And for the next few months, I lost sleep doing it because I was like, oh, my goodness, I get it. I get it. And her camp leader, who's African-American, was like, oh, I've been trying to sum that up for 40 years. That's beautiful, kid. You know. So I get that on that level. Just know that. The struggle is, is like, if I'm going to do Lenny Bruce, I got to tell the whole story. You know, it's like I'm going to put tape over his mouth again. I know Lenny's intentions were pure. I know what he was trying to say, whether I agree or not agree. That's not the point. This is not the Ronnie Marmo show. It's, it's Lenny Bruce. And so Lenny in the 50s and 60s, they loved him. I mean, you know what he says is the word what I use in the, in the show. I say, you know, what word offends me is segregation. You know, Lenny was of the people, and they got it then. And today, uh, it's bizarre because the people Lenny was, that he was defending back then, and they loved him, are the people I'm explaining him to now. Who are those people? A lot of my, I hate to put everyone in a bunch, but a lot of the millennials, uh, whether it be African-American, or, or a lot of white people who are angry on behalf of the African-American, which I always feel like everyone is entitled to their own feelings, of course, but I've met some African-American people, including Christian Gregory, who's like, listen, I don't need white people defending me. I got it. Thank you. But but let me just deal with that in the way I can. So Lenny, I, I don't know if he was right. I know he was trying something. And I know that he had a lot of love in his heart. And he tried. And, uh, and I think it actually went halfway. Because you listen to the music. And within the community, you know, people use that word all day long. Rap music. Some. Isn't it? <laughs> Some people. Some people don't. Some don't. I remember. Yeah. Do you remember the great Richard Pryor moment? Yeah, of course. Yeah. When he came out, he goes, I, I was wrong. I'm not going to. He goes, I went to Africa and he did that whole beautiful bit. He said, I just got chills. It's amazing. He said, I'm not going to use that word anymore. I don't I don't like it. So every night I go up there and I do my best and and I share who Lenny was. And I do that bit specifically with as much love and grace, empathy and, and respect as I can. But I do it because... I would hate to be the guy who almost did Lenny Bruce. That's writer and actor Ronnie Marmo. His play, I'm Not a Comedian, I'm Lenny Bruce, is on stage now. It's just been extended through January 5th at the Royal George Theater. So in the play, you as Lenny focus on his three great loves, um, his mother, Sally, mm -hmm. his wife, Honey, and his daughter, Kitty. How did those relationships shape him? Lenny has a famous quote, which I, I steal, and I'm happy to have stolen it, and but I give him credit. You know why he got into show business? Because look at me, Ma. He just wanted his mother's approval, which I could identify with. I didn't start acting until a day after my mother died, actually. I was 24, and so I understand that on a really deep level. And so he look at me, Ma, and his, it, with Kitty, he loved his daughter, but he always came up short. But Kitty would tell me stories like when Lenny got full custody of Kitty, he would like in the mornings lay out all her vitamins and he like really tried, you know, but he came up short. He was, he was an addict and, uh, and he was obsessed with his, his, uh, you know, his legal situation. And so she really was kind of, you know, didn't get the, the attention she needed. And then honey Harlow was the love of his life. You know, she was a burlesque dancer, a stripper of the time. And he didn't want her to do that anymore, but he fell in love with her. And, uh, so it just shaped him from inside out. He was very good with, women in that way. He was very sensitive and gentle and, you know, very charismatic. As an actor, you know, so often you are playing against people. You have uh, that exchange of, of energy on stage. But this is a one-man show. 
<laughs> I don't mean to exhale, that was a but heavy I'm, sigh. I'm tired. Jen. Yeah, because the thing that I, I come back to is that ultimately this is a very tragic story. There is some nights that the audience has the ability to unlock that special place, and we all know it in the room. And so I love when they unlock that because then it feels like the show's seven minutes long as opposed to 90. And when they don't unlock it, it's a three-hour show. I feel like I'm doing Titanic, you know? <laughs> so uh, it's hard to go on auditions now and, you know, do lines like, Mr., you forgot your pickle. You know what I mean? It's, like, hard to do those roles when you're coming off stage doing this every night. You, sir. Have you ever had your blah blah? Listen, it's a, it's a simple yes and no answer. But remember, it's illegal to say it and illegal to do it within the city limits of San Francisco. Okay, from a show of hands, how many men in this room have ever had their blah blah? Come on, put them up. Okay, keep them up there, because I keep them up. Is... You poor son of a bitch, really. <laughs> Keep him up. Well, maybe he's with his daughter. That's what he's like. <laughs> Keep him up, fellas. Keep him up. Okay, from a show of hands, how many men in this room have ever blah a blah <laughs> Somebody's not telling the truth. Oh, one guy's telling the truth. Not a boy. So we should mention uh, the play is directed by famed Chicago actor Joe Montaigne. How did Joe get involved? Joe has been a mentor to me for at least the last 16 years. I wrote a script called West of Brooklyn. I wrote this script and I sent it to him through a P.O. box I found of Joe. I was like, I have to have Joe Montaigne, the actor. And I wrote him a beautiful letter saying, Joe, I'm an Italian-American actor. I'm trying to make my way in this business. I, I so look up to you and what you've done to navigate your career. And long story short, three days later, he calls me. He's like, it's Joe Montaigne. I got your script. I'm like, what? He's like, yeah, you want to have lunch? I'm like, yes. So I get with Joe, and um, he's been a mentor ever since. He's like a dad to me, quite honestly. So when I wrote this play, I took it to him, and I said, Joe, I think you're the perfect gentle hand to direct this play. Um, and he made me stand up and read it for him, actually. He's like, you know, just read it. I go, right now? He's like, yeah. It was embarrassing. And after some time, he said, you know what? I think we got something here. Just If you could wait for my hiatus on Criminal Minds, we'll do it. And so Joe was instrumental. He's so smart and so talented. I know he's Chicago's favorite son. I, everywhere we went last week, it was like, Joe, hey, oh, you know, <laughs> we had Mr. Beefs. We had everything, you know. It was, uh, so I was, uh, I'm actually, I miss him because he showed me every single beautiful building in this town. And we walked through the whole city. He's like, and when I was seven, we went here. You know, he couldn't wait to tell me everything. How much has his direction <laughs> shaped what the show looks like and feels like? Well, Joe was really instrumental in the dramaturgy of the script. About two weeks before we went into rehearsal, Joe and I sat down, and every day I'd read the play for him every day. He'd say, why don't we move the, the mom stuff to the beginning? And it was his idea to start the play at the end. It was actually his idea. Do you know how I started it? With the N-word. He's like, are you out of your mind? We can't do that. What, are you stupid? <laughs> I was like, I guess so. He's like, you can't. Nobody even knows you. It's cut it out. You know, I was like, I'm sorry. I just thought it was shocking. He goes, yeah, not, for, not in a good way. When you're an actor and you work with somebody you really look up to, you don't try to fight everything and die on every hill, you know? So the two or three things, I was like, Joe, please let me do that. Then he was like, okay, kid, no problem, you know? I mean, he's Joe Montaigne, you know? What can I say? He's such a gentleman. Ultimately, what would you say Lenny Bruce stood for be beyond being a comedian as, as a man? It's an interesting question because 
as the show is evolving, I'm evolving as a person. I don't know. There are things that I didn't believe in two years ago that I couldn't tell you what they are now. It's really interesting. We're, we're together now, Lenny and I in this. And I do believe, as he did, you have the right to say whatever you want. However, what he didn't say, and I'm starting to believe, is that you can say whatever you want. There just might be consequences. And that's a new thought. I, I had that like two weeks ago. I know it sounds silly, but that's it, I'm constantly evolving as a person with this show. And But he believed in the, the right to say what you want and um, to do what you want and have hard discussions. He tells this beautiful story in the show. He says to the judge, if a stripper goes into a public park and shakes her hips, that ain't legal. He goes, I could dig that. But if she does it somewhere in private and those who are there are paying to see her naughty bits, that's legal, right? He says, so then if people are sh- coming to my act and paying to see me perform, why is that illegal? That was his whole thing. When you think about the conversations you hope people have or perhaps are more willing to have after seeing the show, what, what are some of those conversations? I have them every night with people. I come right out after the show and give my another half hour of my time because I know people want to talk about Lenny. And I think people are nervous about where we are as a society and we're regressing and, and people are thanking me for putting the show back on. I'm not saying Lenny was right or wrong. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is he had a right to have whatever discussion he wanted. People are slightly relieved that they could come for 90 minutes and have hard discussions and no one's going to get in trouble for it. What I'm finding with this show is people are taking ownership and they feel like they have this relationship with Lenny through me and I think it's great. I mean, Dick Gregory said when he saw Lenny do the N-word bit, he said that man is the eighth wonder of the world. And if they don't kill him or lock him up, he's liable to shake up the whole country. That's what Dick Gregory said. And I feel like we're right back there now, maybe even more so. That's Ronnie Marmo. He's the writer and star of the one-man play, I'm Not a Comedian, I'm Lenny Bruce, playing now through January 5th at the Royal George Theatre. Ron, thanks for coming on Reset. Thank you so much, Jen. This was awesome. And that's your Sunday Reset. Hey, if you have questions or story suggestions for the show, leave a message on our voicemail line. The number is 888-915-9945. That's 888-915-9945. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening to Reset. Enjoy the rest of your weekend, and let's talk again soon. time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.